Welcome to Hidden Cities, a podcast about the invisible infrastructure that shapes urban spaces and experiences. Hidden Cities explores how policy and legislation informs our built environment, and this series is all about housing affordability. Think of it as an idiot's guide to housing, where in each episode I, someone who doesn't know much about this field, speak with an expert about a policy or economic approach that impacts housing affordability to make these often complex policies more understandable. In this episode, I try to understand build-to-rent. These are developments that are designed for renting on a long-term basis rather than being sold off the plan. They are typically owned by an institutional investor like superannuation funds. Build-to-rent is quite developed in the United States, but so far has had limited impact in Australia. I spoke with Hal Pawson, Professor of Housing Research and Policy at the City Futures Research Centre at UNSW, to try and understand how build-to-rent works, why it hasn't taken off in Australia, and importantly, if it can assist in making housing more affordable. What became evident during this conversation was that the realities of statistics about housing and narratives that circulate in politics and media might be two different things, but they both influence policy and people's ability to live in safe and affordable homes. So it is important to understand both the narratives of housing in Australia and the political motivations that shape these stories. Hal initially trained in the United Kingdom, so I began by asking him about how the invisible infrastructure of housing policies differed in an Australian versus UK setting. Yeah, I mean, because I'm because I'm interested in the um, the, uh, the the operational the, the the policy side and the the operation of rental housing markets in particular, including social rental housing, which has lots of rules and processes. Yeah, it did it did take. <laughs> It did take a bit of uh, induction before I sort of felt confident that I understood how things worked. But yeah, I mean, the approach to, um, to, 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 to housing is not totally different between Australia and the UK. And both, both countries have primarily um, rely on market forces in housing. Uh, both countries have um, approaches to the regulation of private rental housing, which are quite light touch, which are fairly, I would say, in the balance towards the interests of landlords, not so much towards the interests of tenants when you compare Australia and the UK against some other countries anyway. Yeah. So in some ways, it's not, it's not, um, it's not massively different. The, all the Anglophone countries just about sort of share some similarities in the style of housing systems and their approaches to housing. And I guess what I'm kind of particularly interested in is your research on the build to rent sector. And I was just wondering if you could provide a bit of an overview of what the build to rent model is and then a little bit of the history of how it, how it um, developed and then came to Australia. Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I, I've had an interest in, um, in, in private rental housing markets as well as social rental for a long time. And in the UK and in Australia, for many, many years, um, governments have been interested. Governments have been um, looking for ways of um, making it possible or encouraging um, private finance to, or institutional investment is another name that's often used for it, to come into the, the, the rental housing space. An institutional investor is an entity which pulls money to purchase investment assets. Institutional investors include banks, credit unions, insurance companies, pensions, hedge funds and mutual funds. The Australian superannuation fund REST funded 3,000 apartments in the US under a build-to-rent arrangement. 
both countries have historically had a private rental market almost entirely provided by what in Australia are called mum and dad investors, in other words, individuals, and very, very, very little uh, involvement of, of companies or large-scale landlords operating in a more professional way. So um, that, that's, been a, that's been a sort of policy, some people have called it holy grail, of <laughs> housing policymakers in, in Britain that I was very familiar with before, and I think to, to, to an extent in Australia as well for a long time. Um, and in neither country has, it ha- has anything really taken place in this big way in this area until quite recently. So what the term build to rent, which has been invented fairly recently, what that refers to is housing which is designed and constructed with a long-term rental purpose in mind, usually apartment blocks, medium-sized, in some cases larger apartment blocks, which are constructed um, with the intention that they'll be um, owned by, uh, they'll be in single ownership for the long term. There's one commissioning entity for the entire block, rather than the traditional approach of the Australian residential construction industry, which is to build um, apartment blocks on the expectation that every single unit will be sold to a different owner. Many of them may be landlords, but not necessarily. In some blocks, it's mostly owner-occupiers. But anyway, that they they um, set the block up on a strata ownership basis, which enables um, each individual unit to be sold separately. Build-to-rent is different because it is not set up on a strata basis. It's set up on the basis that there will be um, unified ownership as soon as the, 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 the as soon as the building is completed um, and for the long term. So, so that makes it different. And does that mean it um, kind of sits slightly outside of that speculative investment model? How do the who's financing build to rent? Like, what's the what would be an incentive for someone to invest in that? The, uh, the this term institutional investment um, can refer to super funds in mm-hmm. the Australian context. It can refer to insurance companies who often have large amounts of money that they need to park and receive an income from um, to meet their liabilities. It can refer to um, global investors, um, sovereign wealth funds and things like that, um, countries which are um, operating on where sovereign wealth funds operate on behalf of governments and look to make investments in income-generating assets you know, globally. So there's a range of the kinds of, of institutional investors that I think are the sort of commissioning organisations for a build-to-rent building, or that could be um, yeah. f- financing that kind of building. What would be the kind of benefits of investing in a build-to-rent rather than just yes. a conventional development? Yeah, well, why would they be interested? Well, I mean, for them, the choice is not so much between um, investing in a build-to-rent um, scheme rather than conventional housing. The choice for them is usually um, a build-to-rent project or commercial property, or the share market. Those would be the traditional ways that um, institutional investment is um, lodged in order to generate an income generate, you know, a long-term income, long-term income generation. So the question is, does ha- does rental housing uh, yield a sufficient amount to make it interesting to um, to super funds and, and other um, uh, other uh, other entities with large amounts of, of, of money to invest who need to generate an income. 
And historically, the answer has been no. <laughs> historically, the answer has been the returns, the relationship between rents um, and the cost of providing rental property is, was not good enough, was not, didn't generate a high enough return to make rental housing attractive compared with commercial property or the share market. That is less the case today. It's still probably true that um, you wouldn't expect to generate quite the norm of expectations on yields for rental housing would be lower than it will be in commercial property or the stock market. But the big difference is that it's far, far less risky. And what has changed, one of the things which is two, 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 two things, important things which have changed in the last 10 or 15 years. Um, one is that um, the, the yield of rental housing compared with other things has improved. That's not particularly because rental housing is, is, is yielding higher percentage return than it used to be. It's because the other alternatives are yielding less. So okay. it's, what, it's what is called in the, uh, in the finance world um, yield compression, I think they call it. Yield compression is also sometimes called capitalization rate compression. Not that I had heard of either of these two terms before. Yield is an indicator to gauge the performance or returns on your investment. Yield compression happens when rental returns increase at a slow rate or is stagnant compared to the rate of the property price. Yield compression can happen when purchase prices rise due to institutional investors putting money in the same type of long-term investments in a particular location. For example, prior to the pandemic, Melbourne and Sydney CBD office buildings were rising in price due to an influx of investment, but a lack of demand for commercial spaces meant landlords had to lower their rent to attract tenants, resulting in yield compression. So what that's about is if you look at lines on the graph, um, share, the shares and commercial property and, 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 uh, and rental housing, over time, 20 years ago, those lines were, and you've got a yield, percentage yield on the vertical scale, 20 years ago, those lines were well apart. Um, since then, the rental housing yield has probably gone along at a fairly flat, in a fairly flat way. The other two lines have come down substantially. Yeah. Um, they've also come down in a way which is very lumpy. Even, even if the, the, uh, the chances are that you can still yield uh, a better uh, rate of return on, say, commercial property, there's a lot more risk attached to it than there is compared with rental housing. So, and the the sort of concerns about having a, a an asset portfolio which is entirely invested in risky assets, where the you can't be certain that you're going to get even a base level of return, um, concerns about that have increased. So those are the two things which have changed. One, the relative expected yield from housing compared with other things, and two the sentiment of investors about the attitude that they take towards having a, a portfolio, which is a, a balanced portfolio, which has maybe more of a mix nowadays is desired, more of a mix of high risk and low risk um, components. And one thing that I'm kind of interested in understanding, and I think your research has touched on, is what the relationship of build to rent is for housing affordability. I've definitely seen some kind of, um, I guess, more journalistic discussion that suggests that this is a potential, potentially will assist making housing more affordable in Australia. And then on the flip side, 
other kind of critiques that suggest it's perpetuating this commodification <laughs> of housing. Um, and yeah. I was interested in what your your research has kind of found about what the relationship between build to rent and affordable housing could possibly be. Well, that's a very good question, and you're, you've you've highlighted a, a, you know a number of kind of um, aspects of it there very well. The simple answer is I think that it can only have an, if, an impact on housing affordability in a pretty indirect way. Mm-hmm. The, indirect, the indirect way is this. We currently have a housing system in Australia which is, I would say, extremely unbalanced because it is almost entirely dominated by uh, for-profit developers building units and, and houses um, for individual purchasers. And there's almost... There's almost no diversity in that. And individual purchasers are inherently very sensitive to market fluctuation to, and to expectations about, the fu- about future market trends. So mm-hmm. there is a, basically there's a very strong herd instinct in the housing market. And it's a herd instinct which is triggered not so much by what's actually happening now in, in relation to trends in property values, but what you expect what you expect in the next year, two years, five years. And what this results in is a very, very volatile construction sector or residential construction sector because there's a, 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 there's a, a very strong tendency to pile in when everybody believes that there's a we're at the beginning of a boom or in the midst of a boom in, in property values. If yeah. I invest this year, even if it's really hard for me to afford it, it'll it won't matter because in two years' time I'll have made a tidy I'll have made a tidy packet from um, rising property values, and yeah. so um, you know I, I should stretch myself to the limit now. On the other hand, if I think that property is actually um, going to be flat or falling in value this year, next year, two years' time, um, I'll hold back, and of course that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So we've got an extremely un, uh, unbalanced um, housing system, which really exaggerates that because, you know, there, are, there is no counter-cyclical component in it. So what I think, where I think build to rent could help is because build to rent investors are not thinking about next year, the year after. They're thinking about the next 10, 20 years. Hal also co-wrote a feasibility study into the build to rent sector in 2018 which had a key finding about the impact of build-to-rent on housing affordability. The report found that, except we're supported by some form of public subsidy or under rezoning, build-to-rent will not generate affordable housing, nor will it significantly ease wider housing affordability. However, it has the potential to fulfil other important public policy goals, including widening housing diversity, higher construction and management standards, and a more secure form of private rental housing. It could also beneficially introduce a counter-cyclical economic component into the otherwise volatile residential construction industry. Therefore, a legitimate case can be made for facilitating the establishment and expansion of build to rent sector in Australia. So they're also thinking much more about the about a, a steady rental income, not so much about capital gains on the value of property, you know, in uh, in in future years. Rents are far far more stable than um, property values over time. Um, now, we're actually currently going through a period of almost unprecedented rent <laughs> reduction, um, yes. but um, we, it, is, it is an absolutely extraordinary moment. 
and probably the volatility that we're going to see in house in property values over the next year or so will be substantially greater than the volatility we're going to see in, in rents. The way that the build-to-rent uh, industry can have an indirect effect on uh, housing affordability is that it will be less vulnerable to these um, booms and slumps, especially slumps. There will It will provide the, uh, a way of continuing to add to the housing stock, um, continuing to commission and complete new buildings at a time when the part of the residential construction sector, which is targeted at the old market or the traditional market, is having to massively reduce its, its output because so few people are wanting to buy off the plan or, or commission a builder to, to put up uh, a house um, when they think the value of that might be less next year than it is this year. If we also take it, and this is, this is also an if, but if we also take it that the popular belief that there's uh, an overriding need to maximise housing supply, new housing supply, and that that is one of the ways to address affordability in the long term, then a, a significant build-to-rent part of the construction industry will help to smooth out the enormous booms and slumps that we have in the housing market and which make it difficult to maintain a, uh, an adequate level of housing supply over, the, over time. You just mentioned then something that I've kind of been interested in, the idea that there is a need to invest in new housing stock across Australia. Is there a housing stock issue in Australia? Is there a distribution of existing housing stock? Or is it the type of housing that we have that is the issue? Well, uh, yeah, very good question. So, yeah, I, I, I said if the, if the, problem, yeah. <laughs> if the main uh, issue around uh, uh, housing affordability in Australia is a shortage of housing and therefore the, the solution to it is to build lots more. I, I think it is an if. I think it is the, the significance of housing supply is exaggerated often. Uh, yeah. And there are, you know, there are self-serving reasons why the, the property industry would, you know, you'd expect them to do that. Politicians also buy it um, because it's a nice, simple answer. Also plays into a, a narrative, which is that um, the only reason why we've got a problem is because there's too much restriction planning. Um, and, and that's very convenient for Commonwealth governments because it means that we, can, it, we don't control planning. We can blame another level of government. Mm-hmm. These, the, 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 these narratives, I think, are problematic. The distribution question is important. Um, we have a, a housing stock which is... Far, which there are far, far more housing um, units in the country than there are households. There are there's a large um, contingent of, of second homes. There are even some vacant properties built speculatively, waiting for the opportunity to sell at a profit, which are unused at any one time. So, um, and beyond that, much a much bigger issue is there's a huge proportion of larger family housing in this country, which is grossly underoccupied. Uh, we've got over a million owner-occupied houses in Australia with four bedrooms or more, where they're occupied by uh, one or two people. They really, um, they've got three, three or more bedrooms in excess of the, the household's um, standard need. So if this narrative of lack of housing stock is pervasive, as well as politically advantageous for government and the real estate industry, what does that mean for the viability and impact of build-to-rent? 
if you say that all of all those things are a given, that you can't do anything to fiddle around with tax settings or anything like that, that discourage um, second home ownership or underutilization of existing housing. If you say no, no, all that's off the table, then with that with that huge um, con- um, qualification, then yes, we probably do need to build more and more and more. That is not that is a political choice. It, it, it we ought to most of the time. Um, there's very little attention on the fact that there is a choice here. And so um, I guess if we yeah, accept the kind of current political and economic conditions, what policy levers or legislation or kind of shift in mentality would need to happen to encourage build to rent in Australia if it hasn't taken off so far? Build to rent does exist in Australia in a significant way in niche markets already. It doesn't yeah. exist as a mainstream product. The niche markets I'm talking about are student housing in particular, and that, mm-hmm. that has been a, a booming sector for yeah. 20 years or more. So that's the build-to-rent model. It's, a, it's institutionally um, financed for, for the most part. Um, it's built for its purpose. Property uh, Blocks do sometimes trade between entities, but they're held as for the same purpose for, for the long term. Micro-apartment blocks, um, not necessarily used for students. Um, are also um, highly economically or financially viable from the modelling we've done. But the financial viability of mainstream build-to-rent housing, where the apartments are standard sizes, which which are where all the usual apartment design requirements apply, that is much less much less uh, financially feasible in the current uh, in in the current housing market. Now that that could be changing because. I think we can certainly, there are two reasons why it's been so difficult to make it stack up in Australia. Um, and the first is land. The first yeah. is the, is the um, I would say, overpriced land market that we've been used to for many, many years. But it's very likely to be a market which will see massive fluctuations over the next year or two. And there's going to be a lot of people who have been holding sites who will find themselves needing to offload them and you know, with such urgency that they'll be willing to accept lower prices. So um, there could be an opportunity there for the for build to rent developers to acquire land at prices much more favourable in the next year or two than you know than anything in the last few years. That that could make that could have an impact on viability. The other um, aspect of viability, the second of the two factors, which really makes it hard to make build to rent stack up, is tax set. There's a whole range of tax settings which are a dis- where, where build-to-rent housing is, is at a disadvantage compared with other sectors. The, the most important ones are at the state and territory level, land tax. Most um, individual investors, most mum and dad investors who have a single property, and even some of them who have two, are exempt from land tax because they, the value of their property falls below a threshold where you you pay no land tax for a large scale um, a, a large scale rental provider um, land tax uh, kicks in and it makes a significant um, impact on the viability of build to rent that that occurs so really in my opinion that should be evened out so that there's a, a some a greater liability on 
small scale investors, it wouldn't need to be a very high one because there are so many of them yeah. um, to to create a create a more level playing field. But the fact that the vast majority are completely exempt, that I think would have to change and that, that would achieve a, a more of a, an equality. And then at the federal level, there are taxes that control, under the control of the Commonwealth government, which again, disadvantage build to rent providers. One of them is GST. GST settings are much more favourable to developers who are building for the traditional market. Build to sell has a has advantages over uh, over build to rent, which could be which could be levelled out. Student housing, similarly, one of the reasons why student housing has been such a a winner from the financial feasibility point of view is that it has GST concessions, which mainstream build to rent doesn't. Uh, those are there are there, there are some others as well, but those are those are two of the big the biggies which um, uh, which make a difference. I wanted to check: was there anything else that um, is kind of essential to understand about build to rent that I haven't covered over here? I think the the likelihood of getting of getting ref, of of reforms being uh, rushed through, or a, 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 a I think governments be, being more willing to listen to the arguments about this what I would say is levelling of playing fields. I think the, the, with the current situation may create that, um, that, 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 that environment which has um, not been there for the last few years. One of the big problems is that there's such a strong political attachment, especially at the federal government level, to the, the, the concept of mum and dad investors. To the, for a start, it's large numbers of people um, yeah. So you know it has electoral it has electoral considerations attached to it partly, but the the notion of leveling up the sort of prospects of um, corporate investment versus um, individuals is a difficult one to swallow for the current government because they have a very strong ideological affinity as well as a sort of feeling about electoral considerations I think which makes them a bit nervous about about um, doing anything that could be portrayed in that way. The, the narrative of the mum and dad investor is much more appealing, I guess. It's so powerful, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but, but from the point of view of tenants, I don't think it gives, uh, it gives a good result. I think one of the strongest, um, the strongest attributes of a build-to-rent product that we haven't talked about so far is, a, is, is from the... From the from the tenant perspective, it's not so much about affordability because I don't think it's I don't think that we can expect a market build to rent product to be particularly competitive on price. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's about the quality of the product and the quality of the service which is being provided professionally. Since recording this episode, the New South Wales government has moved to consider changes to tax settings in order to encourage the build to rent sector. Howe was quoted in the Sydney Morning Herald as stating. It's a positive thing for the Australian housing system to have a new product to widen choice. He also said, ultimately, if it takes off, it would create a more stable housing system. If you're interested in housework, there are some great resources on the City Futures Research Centre website at UNSW. If you're interested in living in the build-to-rent apartment sector, you might have to wait a little longer.